So turn with me there to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 2 and looking at verses 8 and 9 today. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And as you get there, what's the best gift that you ever received? And maybe it was the best gift because it's exactly what you asked for, right? Sometimes, especially in our modern day, we we have Amazon wish lists. And if you could just go down the wish list and add to cart, add to cart, add to cart, you might be a a satisfied person. Uh, Maybe it was a complete surprise to you. Maybe you didn't ask for it. It was a complete surprise and it was exactly what you wanted and it, it fit exactly with what you need it. And maybe it had little to do with the gift itself. Maybe it was the person who gave it to you, and that's what made it the best gift. It could have been a little bobble that a, a child that created, but in, in your mind, that is the best gift that you could have received, even if it was just made out of paper. It's possible, though, that you don't remember your favorite gift, but if I asked you what is the worst gift that you've received, That might be something that comes to your mind a little bit more quickly. We can probably all think of uh, some real stinkers that we have gotten through the years when you just kind of really have to ask, does this person even know me, right? Maybe maybe it was our our parents gave us something, our spouse gave us something. It was just like, really? Did you get this for me? Is this the wrong gift? Uh, I don't know about you, but growing up in, in my household, sometimes my parents would put the wrong sticker, the wrong label on the gift, and then we're opening up, and they're like, what's this? Oh, that's not for you. That's for your brother. Give it here. Let me... you know, so it's just, you may not remember the best gift, but you may remember the worst gift. But the thing with gifts, whether they're good or bad, is that we don't actually deserve them. That's the point of it being a gift. A gift is a gift because it's undeserved. If someone is compelled to give us a gift, it's not really a gift by definition. And today, as we come to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul unpacks for us a gift given to us that is entirely undeserved, and yet it is the best gift that we can have. Today, I want us to see in our passage that it is in and through God alone that a person is saved. It is in and through God alone that a person is saved. So if you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word as we read Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Paul is writing this letter to Christians, and it's important for us to remember that because what he is addressing in this passage is for Christians. This is for believers in Christ. He intends for this letter to be understood by a believer. And he wants it to be read in other churches, as as he often intends with his letters. And so in this letter, we don't deal with particular heresies. In the book of Ephesians, we're not dealing with particular heresies, uh, but rather he's writing to encourage and instruct. And as he opens up chapter 2, he begins to deal with the states of the Ephesians prior to their coming to Christ. And he describes them as dead, walking in, living in sin, following after this world, following after the leader, the prince of this world, Satan. He said that they were by nature children of wrath, just like everyone else is. And then we get to verse 4, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, changed everything. He writes these pivotal words, and he says that God has taken them from death unto life. He has done something that only he can do, 
And then we come to our passage today, and we have uh, right some of the most famous verses that we have in the book of Ephesians, certainly, maybe of the entirety of the New Testament. These are, these are probably verses that are well familiar to us, but such familiarity, and I would encourage you in this, this, this day, Christian, don't let such familiarity with this passage make your eyes glaze over and say, oh, I've heard this before. But pay attention and listen in and understand how it is that you have been saved, if indeed you have been saved. Marvel this day at the wonderful work of God to save you, wretched sinner. So let's see the first thing in verse 8. Firstly, not our doing. Not our doing. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And we ask the question, how is it that the saints, the believers in Ephesus, how have they been saved? Was it because they were generally good people? These were good people and worthy of God's grace towards them. No. Right? Go back up to verses 1 through 3. It's clear, right? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were by nature children of wrath. You were sons of disobedience. There is nothing in you, Ephesians, that would compel God to save you. That's what he has written, right? That's, this is true of them. They were children of their father, the devil. So they weren't good people who just needed a little bit of help to get into heaven. They were justly under God's wrath. And so what does Paul say here? How is it that they have been saved? By grace. By grace. And what is grace? And how are we to understand what grace is? Well, it's unearned favor. It's unmerited blessing. And as with gifts, we sometimes think we deserve grace. God owes it to us. What do you believe God owes you? Think on that question. Because the reality is, is that certainly in our culture, and sometimes even within the culture of American churches, we get this idea uh, that God owes us good things. That what he owes to us as Christians is good, is blessing, is peace, is comfort, safety and security. Right? We can't imagine a world in which we would be subject the persecution. And yet, as David mentioned earlier, that's by and large what our brothers and sisters in Christ suffer. They suffer. They don't have the comforts that we do. But we think we're owed God's blessing. But what we are actually owed is death. We deserve judgment. For the wages of sin is death. Outside of God's intervening grace, we are that description in verses 1 through 3, not in a past tense, but in a present tense. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are as it's written in Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. We are this, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot... Those who are of the flesh cannot please God. That's who we are outside of God's work, outside of God's grace. And if you're in the flesh this day, that's descriptive of you. If that's your mindset to say, I want to do whatever I feel is best and good and pleasurable and whatever feeds my passions in lust, you are at, at enmity with God. You are hostile to God. You cannot please God. If you, have been, if you haven't been renewed by the Spirit, if you haven't been regenerated and made new, you are hostile to God. You are dead in your sins. And if you have been saved, if you are a saint, and let me pause here and say, what is a saint? It just simply means a holy one. It's not like the Roman Catholics think or some other uh, Christian groups 
or so-called Christian groups who think that to be a saint is to be some kind of higher level of Christian, uh, like you're, you know, Captain Christian instead of just Ensign Christian or whatever uh, terminology you want to use there, right? That's not what a saint is. A saint is someone who's been saved by God, who's being sanctified by God, right? Made holy by God. But if you are saved, if you've been saved, then it's by God's grace alone. It is because God has shown favor to you that you don't deserve. What separates those who are believers from those who are not, the saved from the lost, the living from the dead, is not that Christians are smarter or better than everyone else. It's nothing to do with us. It is all of God's grace. And I understand that that could offend you. That that may anger and frustrate you. You may think, well, that's not fair. And you're right. It isn't fair. What is fair, what would be fair, is no one to be saved and everyone to be cast into hell. That is what fairness is. You have sinned against God. And the only thing that merits is judgment, condemnation. And the wondrous thing is, God saves anybody. This is what grace is. And it's unearned blessing. It's unearned favor. If you have been saved, you've been saved by the grace of God. And Paul adds here, right? Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And now we have to ask the question, well, what is faith? The first thing that Paul is not talking about here is the way that we sometimes use that word is to talk about a system of believing. Uh, so doctrinal system or some kind of theological uh, undertaking. Uh, that's not what we're talking about here. He's not using that word in this manner. What he is talking about is entrusting or believing. So when we see we have been saved by grace through faith, we're talking about we have been saved through trusting. We have been saved through believing. A silly example is that if I go and sit down in the pew, I trust that it's going to hold me. I trust it's not going to fall apart. And some of you may be able to attest there are times when your trust has been misplaced. Or perhaps you had prankster friends who would like to yank the chair out from underneath you right as you went down. Right? In that instance, the faith wasn't misplaced in the chair. The faith was misplaced in your friends that they wouldn't be such knuckleheads, right? That's a silly example. But the author of Hebrews gives us, right, here's a more serious, serious example or definition of it. Hebrews 11.1 1 gives us a definition of what faith is. The author of Hebrews writes here, Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. So we might describe faith as it's an assurance, it's, it's a conviction. It's saying, I know this is true, whether I see it or not, I know this is true. When we talk about faith in God, Hebrews 11 is a great example, right? If you may have heard that passage described as the hall of faith, right? We go through and the author uh, tr tracks kind of the stories of so many of the uh, people in the Bible that were faithful to God and, and that describes how they had faith and what that faith resulted in, right? The first example, of course, is Abraham. Abraham had faith in God. When God spoke to him and said, Abraham, leave your family uh, and go to this land uh, that you do not know. Take, take with you your wife, your children, uh, but nobody else. Don't worry about them. They're not going to go with you, but go where I show you. Or more seriously, when he said, take your child, the child of the promise, the child I said would be the one whom all the nations of the world would be blessed in, take that child and go and sacrifice him to me on the mountain. And Abraham didn't know how God would do this. But the scripture says, 
he believed that God could even raise him from the dead. That's the idea given there. That says, if this is what God has said, if this is what God has promised, I'll do it. It's trusting. Abraham trusted in God. And we could go through and see the various catalogs of persons there uh, in that chapter and see how they trusted God. They had an assurance about God. They had a conviction about God. And so they did what God told them to. Even if it meant at the end of the chapter for those who were cut in half and torn apart and all kinds of uh, persecution happened to them, they trusted God even in the midst of that. So when we talk about salvation being through faith, what we mean is that we have the assurance, the conviction, we trust and believe that what God has declared is true. We trust that when God says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, that he is telling the truth in that. And if we call upon the name of Jesus Christ, if we believe that he is who he says he is, and that he has done what he has said he has done, then we will be saved. And when we talk about faith, we're not talking about a wishy-washy feeling, but it's a conviction of our soul. And just in in contradiction to that, right, listen, our culture says things like, well, this is my truth, or that's your truth. And it's this corruption of the meaning of the word truth. They mean by that, that I can have this conviction, this trust, this feeling about myself, the situation, the world, and it may be different than your feeling, and that's okay, and they both are true, and we can come together, and we can talk about our truths. People may differ, uh, like some kind of bad hokey-pokey. You put your truth in, you take your truth out, I put my truth in, I take my truth out, let's just shake it all about and let's go see what happens, right? No, that's, that's, that's foolishness. That's not what truth is, right? Not maybe what our world says, but that's not the truth. God has spoken. And what he has spoken is true, and if no one in the world believed it to be true, so, so this is what truth is, right? Even if no one else in the world believed it, it would still be true. It would still be true. If no one else believes in the word of God as the word of God, it is still true. Jesus Christ is the truth, the way, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him. So when we're talking about faith, we're not talking about a fuzzy little feeling we get sometimes. We're talking about this conviction, this assurance, this trusting, this believing God is truth. God is speaking truth. Now this brings us to a most important question. Where does faith come from? So that's kind of what faith is, right? It's assurance, it's conviction. But where does it come from? How do we get the faith that we need to trust in the grace of God? How do we come under the conviction that Christ Jesus is the Son of God, that he lived a holy and perfect life, that his death on the cross was a sacrifice, an offering unto God to cover the, the people's, his people's sins, that his shed blood and broken body made atonement, That he rose from the grave to new life and he ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father until he comes again and gathers his people. How do we come to believe this? How do we come to trust in this? Well, what is often said in life and churches and seminaries and and so forth is that we, we need a few elements, perhaps, in varying measures. We need pressure. We need persuasion. We need packaging. We need pressure. We need the pressure of life. We need to come to, the, to rock bottom. And if we get to rock bottom, then we'll be able to see Jesus and understand who he is and believe in him. So we need to come to the end of ourselves. We need, we need to be in the airplane that's plunging to the ground, and then we can have faith. Or maybe we need persuasion. We need to hear the right logical arguments. 
Uh, and I'm not denigrating here the, the field of apologetics, but some people believe that apologetics, that is this kind of this logical argument about Christ and theology and all this rest, that apologetics is the way that people will be saved. That if we can just give them a convincing argument, then they have to have faith. If our emotions are moved, then we'll confess faith in Christ and all will be well. And understand that there are those uh, so-called churches that try to manufacture emotions. They know that at the right temperature, the right lighting level, the right tinkling of the piano, the right timbre of the voice of the person speaking will, will compel people to make a decision. By the way, this is a similar tactic that stores use on you. The right temperature, the right lighting condition, the right music, the right persuasive messaging. Others think that, the, that we need to package Jesus. If we package Jesus the right way, then the consumer will buy him. Right? If you need a therapist, well, Jesus is your guy, man. Come to him and all your problems, all, you know, no more mental health issues if you're in, un, under Jesus' therapeutic care. You need help at home? Husband not doing what he's supposed to do? Get some Jesus. Take him home. If he doesn't work on the first application, try the second application, right? We could modify and market Jesus like paper towels and dish detergent. That is what is happening in the world of Christendom out there, in the world of Christianity. But what does Jesus say? This is remarkable. You know, I've read through the Bible uh, in, in my life before, and every time we go through it again, right, there's always something new that we come across. And in some study in Matthew some time back, I, I came across this, and it just jumped out to me. I'd never really thought of it or seen it this way before. Where does faith come from? Well, Jesus tells us something of this in Matthew 11. I'd encourage you to turn there with me to Matthew 11 and verse 20. Matthew 11, verse 20. Because Jesus speaks to this issue not in the way that we probably think. So first he begins in verses 20 through 24 to denounce cities. The word reads, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chereas, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So let's pause here and comment upon this. What is Jesus saying here? We say he's come to a people. He's come to his own people. He's preached to them. He's, he's spoken about the message of the kingdom of God. He's done mighty miracles. He's done mighty miracles. He's healed people. People who have been sick since they were born. He's cast out demons from among them. They've seen these miracles. And notice here too, right? The pressures of life have been placed upon them. Right? They, they had needs, right? We know that to be the case. He preached the message of the kingdom of God. Do you think Jesus was a persuasive preacher? Absolutely. Uh, go look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew records for us that all the people were astonished. They were amazed when they heard his preaching because he preached with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. They were amazed. They're like, wow, when's he coming back again and preaching? I want to hear this. Uh, we could pause here and comment and say uh, both John the Baptist and Paul had similar experiences. There were, there were leaders and kings who loved to hear from them, but it made no difference in their life. 
But in any regard, after all that Jesus has said and done, these people still don't believe. They don't repent. And notice what he says there, right? If, if what has happened here happened in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. They would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. What's he saying about the people then? They're worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And they're pretty bad dudes, right? We're not left to uh, good thoughts about Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus says, if I've done the same miracles in the pagan cities of old, they would have repented. Those in Sodom and Gomorrah would have been worshiping at the feet of Jesus. But here, his people, the Jewish people, They've been visited by Jesus, the Son of God. They've heard his preaching. They have seen his many mighty miracles. It does nothing to them. So I'll ask the question again. Where does faith come from? Well, let's continue in Matthew 11, starting at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Where does faith come from? It doesn't come from wisdom and understanding. It doesn't come from the pressures of life or persuasive messaging. It doesn't come when Jesus is packaged in the right way. Faith does not arise because we get these things. Faith does not arise because we're born into the right family that we have the right genealogy. Faith arises because of the grace of God. If you are in Christ, if you have been convinced and convicted of the truthfulness of the Scripture, if you are under the assurance that Jesus is Lord, then that is God's grace in your life. God has given to you that understanding. Listen further out of John chapter 6, verses 63 to 65. John 6, 63 to 65. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, were, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said... This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. By the way, we might just pause here and remark, who was Judas Iscariot? He was one of the twelve. Do you think Judas heard the same sermons that all the others did? Did he see the same miracles that all the others did? Why did Judas betray Jesus? Because it was not granted him by the Father to see and believe. Who gives life? God does. By the way, um, we could go back to John 3 and see this as well. The Spirit goes where it wills. The Spirit of God goes where it wills. Just as the wind blows. Right? We don't understand how that works. By the way, we still don't understand how that works in our day and age, uh, despite all our modeling and computers and all, right? We still don't know. I mean, we know in part. We can make good guesses. But there's a, if you ever watch a hurricane track, right, there's a wide cone of uncertainty. It's like, okay, we could either be dead or have a sunny day. Which is it going to be? Right? It, God is the one who grants them to people, who gives to people. 
the ability to come to Christ. It is God who reveals the truth of his word to little children, as Jesus said there in Matthew, and hides it from the wise and understanding. God is not compelled to save anybody. He is under no dictate to save you. If you are saved, it's because of his unearned favor towards you. He has been gracious to you. And at the end of verse 8, as we go back to Ephesians chapter 2, right? it's for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The this of, and this is not, or the that, if depending on your translation, uh, that not of yourselves, the this or the that, is likely referring not just to faith, but the whole of salvation. This is not your own doing. Salvation is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift of God. God would be just to save nobody, and that he saved anybody is a testament of the greatness of his character. Now, we may ask the question, why does he not save everybody? Right? If it's God's... God could grant to everybody the the ability to see and believe in Christ. Why does he not do that? If he can give faith, why does he not give it to everybody? And these are valid questions. And I want us to look at Romans 9 to answer them. Because the scripture answers these. So turn to Romans 9. Romans chapter 9. We'll start at verse 14. And I want us to spend this time here because these are valid questions and we we have to be able to answer them. And there is an answer in the scripture. Romans 9, starting at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So let's pause here and just say, Paul knows that there is this objection. If God can save everybody, why does he not? It sounds like God's being unjust if he doesn't save everybody. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is, this is challenging stuff. I, I get this. But what Paul says here is grace isn't grace. If God is compelled to give it to everybody. Mercy isn't mercy. If God owes it to everybody. We deserve death. Never forget that. That is what we deserve. That is what is justice. That God should save anybody is amazing. And when I say that, I mean the real meaning of that word. Not wow, this ice cream is amazing, right? That he should save me is of the utmost humbling. Because I confess that there is nothing in good in me save what God has uh, done in me. And by the way, we'll see that confirmed in verse 10 when we get there. Not today, but... I confess that I am the least of all the persons in this world that should be saved. Because such is my sinfulness that I deserve nothing but God's judgment and condemnation. His, I deserve death. And that is what I would receive. Save his promise to the contrary in Christ. But as Paul writes, he also knows in Romans 9 that there's going to be another objection. Verse 19 of Romans 9. Look at that. He will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? So what's the objection here that he's, that he's asking, that he's answering? He says, well, if God hardens my heart, 
and I don't have eyes to see, and I don't have a mind to believe, well, that's not my fault. That's God's fault. To which Paul answers, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to his molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same love one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Do you see this? Has it been given to you to understand this? It is God's sovereign, uncompelled will, His good pleasure to save anybody. And He alone gets to make that determination. And I know that may not be what you want to hear. You may be offended by that. But this is what God's word says. This is who God is. And it's true whether you believe it or not. He chooses to give life to some, not based on their merit or worth, but solely of his good pleasure. And we have no right to say anything to the contrary because he is God. Shall we say to our potter, why have you made me? Ephesians 1, 3-6 reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Amen. Is God to be praised for these things? Yes. All praise be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and raised the dead to walk in newness of life. Salvation is not our doing. And I want us to see, secondly, in verse 9, it's not our boasting. Not our boasting. Verse 9, Paul continues and he says, right, not a result of works. The salvation that we have is indeed a gift. It is not of works. And the word here for, for works is a general sense. Paul's not saying works of the law. So he's not just saying, well, it's a obedience to the law of Moses that doesn't save you. He's saying works, any works, whatever works, whether they're compelled by the law of Moses or not. It encompasses all human effort here. There is no human effort in salvation. If you are saved, you had nothing to do with it. It is all God's work. God, according to 2 Timothy 1.8, 2 Timothy 1.8, it is he who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Or Romans 11, 5 and 6. Romans 11, 5 and 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Right? So that's where I get this. Grace isn't grace if it's compelled. Grace isn't grace if you have earned it by your efforts. It's not grace then. It's a wage. You didn't work your way into heaven. You can't work your way into heaven. You can do no works that will result in your salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith, a gift of God and not of works. And I say this again and again because our tendency especially, I think, in our culture, is to believe that we have earned our salvation, that we have worked for it, and thus it is our wage. No, we go back. 
The wages of sin is death. That's our wage, death. That is what we have earned, death. The works that we do lead to death. They don't lead to life. And if we are saved, we have done nothing for it. We are not saved by our efforts. And in this, again, we disagree with the Roman Catholic Church, which says that, yeah, God's grace gets you some of the way, but then you've got to earn the rest of it. You've got to finish, finish that salvation by your hard work, by following the sacraments. No, we are not saved by works. Now, if we are saved, we will do works. That's what verse 10 tells us. We see that in the next verse. And why is it that God's plan of salvation is this way? Verse 9. Not a result of works, so that. Here's our our siren saying, this is the reason, this is the purpose. So that. No, may boast. If we were saved 99% by God's work and 1% by our own efforts, we would have reason to boast. And boy, would we. And indeed, if you listen to some of the, the talk uh, about how people talk about their salvation, about their life, about their churches, about their ministries, you would think that they did it all themselves. They built it. They worked hard for it. But let us confess with the scriptures here that we have no reason in ourselves to boast. And I know some argue that believing in God's sovereignty leads to arrogance and pride. That such a view leads to this attitude of, look at me, I'm special, God chose me. But that is only true if we have bad doctrine. Right? The reformed view of the scriptures is that we owe nothing to our salvation, and if we boast, it's in the Lord. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. We look at Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Or we could look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he says, Let us, if we have reason to boast, it's in the Lord. Let us boast in the Lord. That's our cry. So if we're saved, praise God. Right? If, if we understand the scriptures, praise God. If we have received his grace, praise God. If we do good works, praise God. If we boast, let it be in the one who alone is worthy of such boasting. Right as the song goes, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son. Holy Ghost. Salvation is not of us. It is all of God. The Father ordains it, the Son completes it, and the Spirit applies it. And Christian, you have no reason for arrogance. God did not look at you and say, I want you on my team. Right? Like some kind of divine dodgeball tournament. No, despite you, despite you, if indeed you are in Christ. God chose you from before the foundation of the world, before you had done anything either good or bad, all to his praise and glory forever and ever. Amen. It is in and through God alone that a person is saved. And beloved, you need understanding here. You need to study this, because how quick we are to jump to, well, salvation rests on me. Or maybe it's my predilection for uh, uh, being a Pharisee that, that tends me to this, right? I think we have the tendency in our, in our hearts and minds sometimes to think that if we sin, well, God's disappointed in us, so now we have to like, work extra hard to earn our salvation, right? Uh, you know, I've sinned really bad this week, so oh, there's a church work day coming up, so I better go and, and do penance at the church work day. Because that'll make up for my sin. We think we can earn the favor of God by our strivings. But grace given is a gift. It's unearned. It's unworked for. You can't merit it. And salvation is by grace. It is God's gracious doing and not, not our own. So I'd ask you today, beloved, what are you resting in? 
What are you placing your faith in, brothers and sisters? For instance, do you believe that? Do you believe that when God is disappointed in in, in you that 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 as you sin, He's just He turns from you and He says, "I'm done with you." God saved you knowing you would sin that sin. Christ died knowing you would sin that sin. Christ paid the penalty of your sin. Now, should we sin so grace may abound? May it never be. Don't mistake God's grace for freedom to live in sin. How can we who are dead to sin still live in it? And listen, beloved, we need these reminders of his grace often. We need it every hour, every day. We need the gathering of the body of Christ to stir us up to love and good works. We need the bread and wine to remind ourselves of Jesus. Listen, we sing not just to praise God. When we sing together, we also sing to one another. That's why Paul commands and says, address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What's the point in that? We need to hear the truth. We need to hear it spoken, and we need to hear it sung. So sing to one another. As you lift up your voice to God, sing to encourage one another. Instruct one another. Stir one another up. Some of you, though, may live with a false faith faith in Christ. You live with a false faith in Christ. You may profess to trust in Him, but if you look at the results of your life, the direction of your life, the focus of your life, the values of your life, they point to something very different. Because you don't value the things that he values. And you don't strive for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Faith without works is dead. And that's not contradictory to what Paul says here. Paul writes here in Ephesians. And if you have questions about why that's not contradictory, I'd encourage you to come talk with me. I would love to sit and discuss that further. But faith is an assurance, a conviction of things unseen. It's a deep trust in the words and works of God. Faith confesses that we are saved by the unearned grace of God alone. And that changes what we think, what we say, and how we live. Hear the scripture that says, work out your own faith with fear and trembling. So trust in God and not yourself. Look to Christ and Him alone. However, some of you here may not even, uh, you don't even have a false profession of faith because you don't even have a faith to profess. You know that. You wouldn't describe yourself as one who believes. And whether you believe it or not, the truth, and I, when I say that, I do mean the truth, not a truth, not, not one of many, not my truth, not your truth, the truth, whether you believe it or not, the truth is that you stand condemned before a holy God. You are under the sentence of his judgment. You are following after the course of this world, uh, which will end in fire. You will be cast in that place of hell for all eternity, for all the evils that you think and say and do. And you may reject that and say, well, that's not fair. I do good things. So it would be unfair for God to judge me when I, I do pretty good things. But friend, understand this. You cannot earn salvation. The good that you do is not good enough. The good that you do is the good that you're supposed to do anyways. So why would God give you grace for something you are obligated to do anyways? No, the sin you do is enough to condemn you for all eternity. You are marred by it. You may be very young. You may be but a child. But the sins that you've committed, though maybe not great in comparison to other people, is still disobedience before a holy God. And the only reward such people receive is death. But God, but God sent his son, Jesus, 
to die in the place of sinners. He sent his son Jesus to bear his wrath for wicked people. And if you call upon him, if you believe in him, you can be saved. So look to Christ today. Set aside your objections. Set aside yourself and trust in Jesus. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That is the promise of God. Do this this day. Do not delay. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, what words can we use to express our thankfulness unto you for your work of grace? Father, what can we, what, what can we do to return unto you the praise, the worship, the thanksgiving that, that would express something of what it is you have accomplished on our behalf in Christ. Father God, we pray this day that we would comprehend this passage, your word. Father God, have mercy upon us. And for as many as do not believe, Father, have mercy and send your spirit to open their eyes, to unstop their ears, to give them minds and hearts that believe. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have given unto us. God, we thank you for the salvation that you have alone have accomplished. Father, we thank you in the humility of our hearts that you have done this work, even in sinners such as us. Oh, Father. May your word go forth. And we know that as it goes forth, it will not return void. May it cut to the joint and marrow, the soul and the spirit. That we would all, all who hear, even in this moment, and for those who are outside of these walls, who are dead in their sins and trespasses, Father, that they would hear the truth of your word. They would confess Jesus as Lord to the praise of your glory. So, Father, we thank you. We praise you in all these things. In the name of your beloved Son and our only Lord, Jesus. Amen.